Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2022, year four of the Life in Red podcast, and this is episode 130. Um, you can find us anywhere on the internet. Uh, if you go to lifeinredpodcast.com, at Life in Red Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and almost messed my words up there, at Life in Red Pod on Twitter. My guest today, this was... Uh, I, I can't think of a lot of better ways to start off a new year of podcasting with one of the most impactful conversations I've had um, on this podcast, and I've had many. many. Um, this is my first guest I found from TikTok, and they shared the story of having long COVID. Um, so we talk all about that. We go through you know, the initial diagnosis of COVID and what that was like, what their life was like beforehand. Um, and to me, uh, it was absolutely sort of surreal to hear that they went from running ultra marathons to now barely being able to walk in some cases. Um, we talk about what long COVID is like, um, and now she's been dealing with it for two, almost two years. Um, and that is a really scary thing. It really opened my mind to think when we talk about lockdowns, restrictions, you know, everybody going to get Omicron. Um, this one really opened my eyes uh, because we don't know. We don't know who this will affect because it can affect any one of us. And to hear what has happened to her life since since this sort of journey with long COVID and others that she's talked to and found over the internet um, on about talking about this. Um, it's scary. It really is scary. And like I said, it is a very impactful conversation. You can find them on TikTok at Long COVID Life, uh, and you can get into many more details and in-depth into the things we sort of touch on in this podcast. So please give it up for my guest, Beth Ann. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. That's the first time I heard it on someone else's screen. Uh, Beth, welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, and I, I was mentioning off mic, you're my first guest from TikTok um, after a year of, or a little under a year of me scrolling the FYP. You're a, a story that came across my page where I was like, this is interesting and this is really important. So first off, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I, think, <laughs> um, I, I honestly never imagined I would be found off of TikTok because I was similar. I was just scrolling for a year. So yeah and, uh, it was just a few months ago I started sharing my story so that yeah that's interesting and um your story is that of which I think is really important and that's on uh living with what we now know as I guess long COVID syndrome and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more research and science as the pandemic continues to wear on and we learn more and more about this virus um but I want to know about you and uh, we're going to talk about all these things that have happened but I mean, before COVID, um, before you started feeling the effects uh, of after being contracting it, you know, what were you doing? What was your life like? What sorts of things uh, did you enjoy and like to do? Sure. So uh, I live out in rural Western GTA. So I'm about an hour Northwest of Toronto and I live on five acres of farmland. Mm. Um, we moved out here because... Um, I'm an uh, ultramarathoner. My husband was a marathon, well, an ultramarathoner as well. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, conservation land, a lot of parks. We do a lot of hiking, mountain biking, um, you know, training for marathons. We were running on average three or four a year. Um, so it was just constant movement, constant being outdoors, um, you know, doing the things that we love, a lot of gardening. Um, outdoors mm -hmm. 
I find ultra marathoners so fascinating because I run for 20 minutes. I'm like, wow, this is, this is enough for me. Uh, and I like to think of myself as like someone athletic. <laughs> Tell me about like, for those who don't know, like ultra marathons, what are those? And like, how long have you and your husband been doing that for? So, um, an ultra is any distance over a marathon. So just like when you run your first marathon, you get to call yourself a marathoner. I've done two ultras. There were only 50 K cause that's mm. considered short for an ultra marathon. Um, but then I've done 11 marathons on top of that. Um, we did our, our two ultras that we did were uh, trail races. So one was out in Niagara on the lake where you actually run to the falls and back. Oh. And then the other one is a trail race in Paris, Ontario. That is just 50 K of Hills. It's just mean. I cried. I think that's the Ooh. only course I've ever cried on. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was something that we could train for together. Um, the poor guy, when we first started dating, you know, seven, eight years ago, I just signed him up for marathons and didn't oh, run. No. <laughs> and, uh, he had no choice but to train and, and run with me. And those were our dates. Like we would, we would run on our dates. I was living downtown Toronto at the time. So we'd run along the waterfront together and, uh, yeah, it was kind of a forced pulling him into running, but, uh, well, yeah, he was faster wow. than me. <laughs> you must be pretty amazing to, uh, have someone stick around after being dragged into training for a marathon. <laughs> And that's why I married him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always, I find it so fascinating for that. Like people who like um, Courtney DeWalter and, and others like that, who just, and like yourself who can run these like absurdly long races. What was it that sort of drew, drew you to, I mean, running is one thing, running an hour is one thing, but these like grueling put your body through almost everything types of runs that made it so enticing. They're addictive. I mean, it's that, mm. you know, you just end up doing a little bit more and more every week. So, you know, once you hit the marathon, we thought, well, an ultra is only about like an hour extra on top of a marathon. Oh, right. Yeah. So you just do a little bit more each week and it, it becomes that challenge. And I had a really good group. So I was part of a running room group in downtown Toronto and we became really close and we were training for races together. So it was the peer pressure too, and the FOMO and, you know, we did it as a group and it made it a lot more fun. There was a lot of drinking after. So, you know. <laughs> Need those carbs back. It yeah. was a reward. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, you're, at that, I would consider that very like high performance athlete living an active lifestyle. Then the pandemic hits. Um, when did you like con like contract it first? And like, what was that experience sort of like um, for you? So our story is crazy in that um, uh, we got married on February twentieth of 2020, February 22nd of 2020. Um, so literally weeks before, you know, we started shutting down here in Ontario and we honeymooned in Vietnam. So we, we squeezed our wedding in, we went to Vietnam just as, you know, things were really ramping up in China. We had a layover in Hong Kong, spent a day there. Um, no one was there. Like the streets were pretty empty. Everybody was fully masked. Um, you know, protocols were in place, we were getting our temperature taken. So all the stuff that we would, you know, come to realize it's normal here, we were seeing it first over there. Mm. Um, so we did our few weeks in Vietnam, we came back, and then we had to quarantine for two weeks. Um, and then by the time we came out of quarantine, I went to the grocery store, again, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I came into contact with an infected employee. I went home. Um, it was back before plexiglass, before masks, before mm. social distancing. Like at, at this point, we just had hand sanitizers at the doors. Um, it was March 24th, 2020. And um, it was back to when grocery stores were letting you know or stores were letting you know if there was an infected employee. So the Longos I went to actually sent an email out saying, hey, if you were in the store at this time, we have an infected employee. So I, I went back and I looked at my bank statement and I was like, that's the exact day I was there. Mm. So um, 10 days later, I developed symptoms and I knew instantly it was COVID. It was so 
remarkable. And that first wave of COVID was very different than what people mm -hmm. are even dealing with now. It was the extreme fatigue, dry cough, extreme weakness. I couldn't walk. I mean, I was bedridden, um, unable to move for 17 days. Wow. Um, and I think that's important to know because so often we, even back then, we, we hear it now, but even pre-vaccine, there were a lot of kind of people who were um, spreading this idea that if, you know, you're young, you're healthy, you're taking care of your body, which obviously if you're running ultra marathons, you're pretty up to date with your fitness, your lung capacity, and, and you know, all that is very strong. You still were like almost debilitated uh, by this, this virus, which is, you know, it, it is quite something. Um, I, I find it interesting that you kind of know, remember like almost like the exact day, the exact moment you found out what was going through your mind at that point. Cause that was still very, the virus was new and we were getting a lot of new information very rapidly. You know, what was your, your kind of your mindset like? Cause obviously we didn't even know long COVID was a thing at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying. So I don't know if you remember Chris Cuomo got it really early on. And remember, they were like showing him on CNN and he was in his basement. Um, so I was like a couple days after him as far as like his onset. So I was actively watching him just to see how he progressed. But what we were seeing on the news was people who would catch it, they'd be sick. And then all of a sudden there was this story back then that on day 10, you either get better or you end up in the hospital and you die. And there was like no in between. So in my brain, I felt like I just had to wait it out 10 days. And if I can make it past that 10 day point, I would start to get better or I might not wake up. So my poor husband who, you know, at this point he had quarantined downstairs. I was living upstairs in our bedroom. Um, he would, we basically were told by public health, um, don't go to the hospital. There's nothing we can do for you. Stay home unless you're gasping for air. So my husband would stand by my bedroom door at night and he would just listen to hear if I was gasping. Mm. And I wouldn't know he was there, except then I would hear the squirt of the disinfectant because he would wipe down the door and then, you know, wipe down the, the railing, you know, to go downstairs and then go back downstairs. Um, so it was terrifying. I genuinely thought I could die. I've never felt like my whole body had to fight something off like I did with this. And I remember even um, you know, we were newlyweds. This was only six weeks after right. our wedding, which is crazy. So at one point we decided, um, we're going to see each other outside, which meant I had to get downstairs and get out the door. And it took me 45 minutes to walk outside because I, I physically didn't have the strength to put one leg in front of the other. And then, you know, again, I, I felt like I was, um, like infected, like contagion. Like I felt like I was the virus, right? So I was I was walking around the house and I had my hands in my hoodie pocket, right? Like, because I wasn't touching anything. I remember once I accidentally touched the dog when I was doing this and my husband got so upset because at the time we didn't know if you could pass it to your pets. He thought he would touch the dog after and then he might get it. Like it was just, we both were on, on edge for, mm -hmm. for the first. And the other thing too is they kept saying after, um, you'll be contagious once your symptoms die down. Well, my symptoms never went away. Day 17 comes. I still have all of my symptoms. I'm just as sick. I ended up coughing for six months. My fever from COVID hasn't gone away. I've had a fever for 22 months. So that's the big thing. They kept on saying, well, when your fever breaks, then you're not contagious and you can come out of quarantine. Well, if your symptoms don't go away, and I wasn't able to get a test because at the time, my local city didn't have testing supplies, I just had to stay in my room and wait it out. That must have, like, again, one of those things about this virus is, I mean, I see it a lot now. There seems to be a lot of guilt and sort of like shame when people contract it, even with Omicron and how sort of like, you know, virulent it is, how contagious this, this variant is. But even with Delta, even with Alpha, even with the original strain, like you got, we don't often talk about, you know, where we talk about the physical symptoms and trying to get better, but you're right. Like all of that must've just been a complete detriment to your mental health, having to isolate, 
um, especially when you reach that day 10 point or, and like you said, day 17 and then onward, it's like the, I'm still, why do I still have symptoms? They're not going away. What's happening? I, no answers. I mean, how did, how did you mentally kind of also get through the, at least that beginning period before I, I get you talking about more of this long COVID symptom? So to deal with the loneliness, I decided when I, like within a day or two, I, I don't know if you're like this, but I find comfort in watching like a TV show where you watch like the whole thing, like a whole series, and then you get attached to the characters. So I decided I was only going to watch one thing the entire time. And I watched for the first time in my life, I watched Gilmore Girls start to finish. So mentally it felt like they were like familiar and I'm from New England too. So it felt like, you know, a, a familiar setting, you know, it's, it's a familiar time period for me. So it just felt like someone was in the room with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I just had it on, you know, 10 hours a day for 17 days and I finished the whole thing. So that helped. Um, you know, my husband, he would come in the room twice a day. He would leave food on the other side of the room. He would stand there and talk to me for five minutes. And then he would say, viral load, viral load. And he would, you know, recognize that he was probably, we were sharing too much air. He would go back downstairs. So I'm luckier than some others who, you know, maybe didn't have any kind of human interaction during that time. And I was very, very fortunate. Um, The company I worked for right off the bat was incredibly supportive. I called them the day I got sick and they said, you don't worry about your job. Your primary concern is getting well. That's your job now. So don't even think about us. I had people from work texting me every single day, checking in. Um, My boss at the time would send me pictures of her pets every day just to distract me. Um, It was just nonstop support from folks. So I never felt alone in that. And that helped. Now, did I, did I end up having PTSD from that fear of dying? A hundred percent. That was terrifying. But as far as dealing with the loneliness, I felt well supported and I was very, very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like I said, like the mental health of having the virus, dealing with it, um, like that's again one of those things that we just have not considered. What are the after effects of not only the physical but the mental of everything? Like, so when we're talking about letting this virus just kind of like run rampant, mm-hmm. like are we emotionally and mentally ready to also do that for the amount of people who are going to contract it? Uh, it, yeah. All stuff to consider. So I'm I, I'm I'm thankful that you brought that point um, up. You mentioned day 17 um, a few times in the beginning here. What was it about day 17 that sort of like that was like a marker day from sort of this idea of I'm I'm sick. I have COVID. Was that maybe like the a light bulb to sort of real think that oh maybe there's something more here that I have to worry about or that I should get checked or? Not yet. Um, Day 17 was the day I rejoined the house. So I remember, I don't still think I touched my husband for a few more days. We were scared, but I remember day 17 was the day I finally had to pet my dogs Um, because not even like being able to see your dogs for a few weeks was really hard. And it, it was confusing for them. They didn't know what was going on. Um, and I have a very needy Rottweiler German Shepherd who <laughs> likes to hold hands. So I remember just like holding hands with the dog on day 17. Um, but I was still very, very sick. And I remember um, trying to make a plan to go back to work. And I think that happened maybe after uh, three weeks, I think I tried. So maybe in the mid, you know, day 21, day 25-ish. Um it didn't work. I, I think I was there for a day or two and I had to go back out for another few months. So I was out of work pretty much in bed for three months. And it was, so I got sick, you know, I was exposed March 24th. It was the end of June where I think maybe we started to hear stories about post-viral illnesses from mm. previous viruses. And, you know, I, I wasn't getting better. I, I still was coughing. I still had the fever. My weakness was slowly starting to get a little bit better, but Um, I was still pretty sick. And that's when we, you know, people started forming support groups and people started talking about this concept of post-viral illnesses. And we started realizing, hey, some of us might, might be sick for a while. Mm -hmm. So what sorts of, I I mean, you mentioned it kind of, um, you know, weakness, coughing. What are some of like, 
the symptoms even now, like what, that you're still kind of sort of like carrying forward? Because I've seen some things, at least on TikTok, um, I had to write it down, like parasomnia, which is, I guess, yeah. where everything smells and tastes like garbage, which is absolutely terrifying. Um, what sorts of things were you experiencing and what do you continue to experience even my God, that was two years ago. <laughs> yeah, 22 months. Wow. So I was very, very lucky to not get, um, you know, the loss of smell and taste like a lot of people. Mm. Um, parosmia that you're talking about, a lot of people are getting where everything smells and tastes like garbage. I didn't get that. I was very lucky. Um, for me, um, I, I actually just did a video on this this evening. Um, my symptoms in year one and year two have changed a little bit. So year one, I was still dealing with the fallout from coughing for six months. So I developed a condition called costochronditis, which is an inflammation of the rib joints from all the coughing. And everything in my upper body was all caved in on itself. So I was having shortness of breath literally because I had coughed myself to the point of cave in. And I had to work with a physiotherapist to open everything up. So I did breathing exercises with her. Um, there were stretching exercises to relieve the inflammation. Um, so that symptom in particular definitely got a lot better and I don't deal with that too much right now. Um, the brain fog in year one was horrible. Um, I still do have some brain fog issues. I told a story the other day about how I struggle to tell time on an analog mm -hmm. clock, which is the weirdest thing. I can look at it and I, I don't know what it's telling me, um, which is scary, but I, I do have some short-term memory loss. I forget words. Um, so that's kind of an ongoing issue, but it's gotten better. I've, I've done some things, some brain training exercises and actively work to try to uh, remediate some of those symptoms. But today, uh, the worst of my symptoms is chronic fatigue syndrome with post-exertional malaise. And post-exertional malaise is basically you get sick from living life. So every day you have an envelope of energy that you can use. And if you go over that, then you will end up with flu-like symptoms 24 to 48 days, 48 hours later, um, which is sore throat. My fever goes up even more, terrible body aches, chills, you know, the whole nine yards, like, like a flu. And what can trigger it is um, even this conversation, even being on video inevitably is probably going to trigger a flare up oh, uh, over the weekend. I'm so sorry. No, it's, it's, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad, but it's the, you, you end up having to uh, basically perform a risk assessment every day. You know, if I'm working a full day, I certainly can't go to the grocery store at night. So that has to be a weekend activity. And I can't grocery shop by myself because I'm not strong enough to push the cart and load the groceries. So my husband has to grocery shop with me now. Um, and even then, by the time I get to the belt, sometimes I just have to go straight to the car because I'm, I'm very weak. Being in a grocery store can be overstimulating with the lights and the sounds and the people and everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's a lot of that. So that, that ends up really controlling my life right now. I don't leave the house much. I, I just went back to work after being off for six months. Um, so I'm trying to manage my, my energy levels with working during the day. And then, you know, I'm, I'm no longer obviously doing anything during the week other than work. Uh, my weekends will be rest and whatever little housework I can do. And my husband will have to pick up the, the slack for the things that I can't get done, which, you know, he's a partner. He's always mm -hmm. done that, but it's a lot more work on him. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that's been really, really uh, getting worse for me that I'm a little concerned about is um COVID really attacked my legs in a mean way it was almost like my legs were my strength and COVID was like screw you I'm going to take away you know the thing that made you you and um I have constant burning in my legs and it feels like I ran a, a marathon that I didn't train for yesterday so you know if you go if you do a workout really hard and you have that muscle soreness in the morning mm -hmm. imagine having that every single day but you didn't move the day before it messes with your head and it's been getting worse. Um, I learned the word last week, painsomnia, which means you can't sleep because you're in so much pain. And it's, it's getting to that point where I just, I, I lie awake for hours at night because I'm in so much leg pain. They just, it's unbearable. So I uh, am going to see uh, my doctor again, just to kind of talk about some treatment options and next steps um, to this point, knowing that, 
there's not a whole lot they can do for long COVID. There's not a lot they can do for chronic fatigue syndrome. There's not, you know, there, there's not a ton of treatments out there. They're still researching that. Um, you know, I've been hesitant to go to doctors too much. I've been, you know, far more kind of sitting back, watching the research, seeing the studies that come out, seeing if there's something I should pursue with my doctor. But now that I'm getting to the point where the pain's really impacting my quality of life, mm. I've got to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. You maybe can't treat long COVID, but you try to mitigate some of those effects as best as you can and, and treat those sort of symptoms of the overall, um, I, I guess, the syndrome. Um, yeah. What What was the initial point that, I, I know you mentioned you were kind of on support groups, um, we were hearing more stories, but what was the point for you that led you to be like, I really think I have this, I'm going to go to the doctor and I guess what what that would start is you embarking on this now new journey of living with this whole, I mean, really like it's, I, I don't think it's too um, over dramatic to say like, this has changed everything about your life in, in a lot of, in almost every way. So what was the initial point that got you to, to go to the doctor and then sort of take us through, you know, what were those maybe early conversations like and, trying to figure this out? It's a great question. Um, I was petrified of medical gaslighting. I was convinced that um, they were going to tell me I'm crazy and no one was going to believe me. And since I had moved out to you know my rural area, I didn't have a GP. And I determined in my head at the time, I'm going to wait and try and get into some kind of long COVID specific program because I want to work with people who are specializing in this area. So at the time I had heard about the CANCOV study, which is the largest long COVID study in Canada. And um, I tried to get into that and I, I did end up getting into that, but it, it was a long process before I was even able to talk to any of the researchers there. So I didn't actually speak with anyone um, at the Kankov study until December, I think I went mm. and got um, some blood drawn for them. So that was what, eight, nine months um, before I talked to a doctor about it. I did happen to have a good friend who is a GP in my area, and he actually was working in the COVID ward. So he saw COVID patients all the time. So I would talk to him about things, but I, I wasn't getting personally treated. Um, at the same time, I also found out in Burlington, uh, Ontario, there was a um, kind of a wellness clinic. They did physiotherapy, naturopath, you know, all the disciplines under one roof. They started a long COVID specific program. So I reached out to them and started that. I want to say a month or two later, it was probably early 2021. And they were great because they introduced me to concepts like pacing, which was how I was going to manage my chronic fatigue syndrome. That idea of not pushing myself too much because the crashes put me back in bed. Um, they, they did the breathing exercises with me to increase lung capacity. They helped me with the costochronditis. Um, they actually did start me on a graded exercise program and it actually has been determined that that's not appropriate therapy for people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Any kind of exercise at all is just going to make us sicker and actually can have a detrimental impact mm. more than just a flare up. It could actually make us permanently sicker. So I, I kind of took a step back from that, but I also worked with a naturopath. So all this was going on and I hadn't even met with a GP yet. So finally it got to a point where I realized I, I have to get a doctor. This is ridiculous. So um, I did get a, a local GP and she believed me. And that's, that was all I needed from her in the first visit mm -hmm. was for her to say, yes, you have long COVID. I believe you. Let's see what we can do. And she's, uh, kicked off the whole process of sending me a specialist because really when you first uh, get that long COVID diagnosis, there's really two pieces to long COVID. There's residual damage that you have from the initial virus, and then there's a post-viral condition. So a good GP is going to send you to a bunch of specialists and make sure you don't have lung damage, heart damage, any kind of organ damage. Your labs all look relatively normal. And then from there, once you get all your results back, you can, you know, either treat the damage that you have from the initial infection or develop a course of action for your remaining post-viral symptoms. Mm. What's, 
So you, you started to learn all this. Um, you start treating yourself and I, you know, I'm happy that you had a good doctor because one thing I've definitely talked about in this podcast a lot is whether it's, you know, Lyme disease or endometriosis, you, that medical gaslighting is a, a real thing um, in particular for mm-hmm. women and in particular for, you know, black people, indigenous people, other people of color um, it's real mm-hmm. and it can happen. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to receive that, you know, the validation, because I know I do understand that's very important. But so you start getting treatment, you start, you know, I guess getting into research. Uh, I'm sure you were in some support groups chatting with people. What's of, what sorts of things were you, you, you learning about this? I know it's not a concrete science yet. Um, and, and we're, it's continually evolving, but what sorts of things you know, were you hearing from other people who might have experiencing long COVID and some of the things that doctors were like, well, maybe try this, maybe this will help. Was there any sort of true in like treatment at all? Or was it just kind of like, well, we'll try this and then we'll like, oh, we'll see. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. I mean, even from the, the Kankoff program and from Ontario, but as of right now, the materials that have come out pretty much just point you to the concept of pacing. Hmm. There's no, no recommended uh, treatment uh, offered uh, as, as advice to, to GPs or to us as patients. There's really not. Now, are there a lot of people? Um, I, I've seen it more, I think, in the States. I think there are some people trying to make some money off long haulers and I, I've seen some, you know, science labs and I'm using quotes pop up uh, saying that they have a test that can find stuff in your blood that no one else can find. And, you know, they have treatments for those specific things. There's not a lot of science to back up what they're pushing. I mean, I think long haulers need to be really cautious about that. I think that, again, because we all have such different symptoms, our, our approach to treatment has been very different. Um, I know a lot of people are, you know, looking at, at naturopaths and supplements and, you know, acupuncture and, and things like that. Again, more to just alleviate, mm-hmm. you know, some of the, the symptoms that they're dealing with. Um, but again, there are, there are some theories that I think are gaining ground. I think there's been a lot of research, uh, especially in Europe, on microclots, the whole concept that um, the, our blood is not being oxygenated properly, basically. Mm. Um, and that's what's causing a lot of our problems. So there are some therapies and uh, experimental, really, treatments that are being offered in Europe. Um, but as far as what's going on in North America right now, there's no no real concrete. Yeah, it's, we're still trying to patch the holes of like people getting infected. Like it's like there's been no proactiveness because our medical system and researchers are just trying to, you know, repair the, the damage that's been been done from this virus continuing to spread uh i i i don't know if you know the number um isn't it something like i i've seen it but i could be wrong um like it was like 30 percent of people with covid experienced some sort of uh, you know uh, effects of long covid in in some cases i don't know if you you know or have heard that same stat yeah that's the number that generally gets thrown around and again it's kind of hard to concrete measure long haulers I yeah. mean, it's not reported in the same way as cases are right because again um you know you could because technically the definition is if, you, if you've experienced symptoms longer than 12 weeks well again for me at 12 weeks i was still experiencing symptoms of the infection itself i was still coughing i you know i still had those kind of residual things um so there are some people who could fall into that category that are having, you know, residuals from the infection. And then there's others who are going to fall into the category of um, post-viral illness. And there are other countries that are actually breaking those numbers apart a little bit better than we are. We're not really quantifying that, I think, yeah. in the same way in North America. What's, what sort of struck me, that, uh, something you said, that there's such a, a vast ar- array of different symptoms that people are experiencing. And when it comes to yeah. like that, to me, that's like maybe the, one of the scariest parts because, you know, it's one thing to be like, Oh yeah, I have the cough and I'm tired. Like, and everyone's like, okay, I, I get that. But like just how it affects you in so many, like can affect different people in so many different ways. Like 
that like to me that's maybe one of the most concerning things uh, aside from how severe infections can be especially in an unvaccinated folks uh, and dying like this to me is like i remember talking to uh, some friends who are nurses and um, it was kind of in the peak of uh, at least in ontario our delta wave was it i think it was our delta wave in april it might have been alpha still but they were saying that what people don't realize is yeah we have people in the icu with covid but in other hospital beds, we have people with, you know, long COVID and like, they're also in the hospitals too, way longer after their infection. And some people were asymptomatic. They didn't even know they had it. And then all of a sudden they're like, they can't get out of bed. Like it like almost like hits you like a truck. Like to me, like it's not so much a question, but just thought just like that to me is one of the most concerning things about this whole situation. Um, And I've heard it phrased as a, a mass debilitating event and that like, we're just yeah. going to be paying for this economically, physically, mentally, like all of it for years upon years upon years. Yeah. That, two things. One, um, we know long COVID is triggering autoimmune disorders in people. And that also is kind of that like wide range of symptoms, right? So people are getting, I, I've talked to people who have all different kinds of autoimmune disorders and they all have, you know, different piles of symptoms that go with each of those. And, and again, you know, when we talk about how we're probably going to be sick forever, that this is why, because it's it's actually triggering these other, you know, chronic illnesses with no cures. Um, but to, you mentioned the economic impact. I actually read an article this morning that was estimating that uh, it, it was in the U.S. and they were talking about the massive, um, you know, <clears throat> job uh, opportunity that they have in the U.S. right now, you know, so many millions of jobs that are open and available. And they were saying roughly uh, 15% of those are as a result of long haulers who just can't work and had to uh, leave their jobs Mm. and are on disability now. So as the cases continue to kind of spiral out of control in places, I think we're going to continue to see that number go up. Yeah. You know, I I remember it was in April, I was listening to a podcast uh, and it was sort of right at the beginning of this great resignation and all these job changes. And the person was saying, it's like a lot of it um, is because people who are working essential jobs like died of COVID. And then we have this extra percentage of people who are going to be on disability because they can't work. And we have other people who are able to work, but not able to maybe work in the same type of capacity. Like it's just this whole cyclical thing. And we see the experiences here in Ontario um, and in Canada in general. But when I look at states like Florida and Texas and some of those states that are just like, we don't care. I like, I just, it's hard to think that far ahead. Uh, I get it because everything is so on fire now, but I it just like, I, I, I almost don't think we've seen the worst of it in a lot of, in a lot of circumstances. And that is, again, it's just one of those things where no one's really sort of concerned about right now. Yeah, for sure. I, I will tell you if I didn't have a job where I can sit all day, there's no way I could work. Um, I was talking to a long hauler in South Carolina a few weeks ago and she was 25. She's a teacher and same thing. She can't stand all day anymore. So she actually had a school board that set her up with one of those robot iPad things. And she was teaching her third graders with the robot iPad. She was home and it would like zoom around the room and they had a teacher's aide with her. And uh, her school board accommodated her for six months and then said, this is ridiculous. You need to come into the school where, you know, you can't work here anymore. And she was like, this is my only career. I just left university. I I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I know she was lawyering up and she was going to fight it. But, you know, this is the reality. If you have any kind of, I mean, and really for me, I I couldn't work for months because of the brain fog and you know all my other symptoms. And you can see behind me is a bed because I, I take some of my meetings from bed because I just can't sit up all day. There's no, there's no way the, the folks who have standing jobs, moving jobs, walking jobs, I, I don't know how they even try to, to go back to work with long COVID. When we talk about fatigue, I think like the fatigue that you're experiencing and other people who are experiencing with this, it's hard to quantify what that actually is. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we're like, oh, oh, you're tired. You just want to sleep. Like, can you just explain a little bit like how debilitating 
like when you're talking about chronic fatigue, what it's actually like? Yeah. Um, for me, especially, I just can't stand a lot. Um, so when it's, when I'm having a really bad flare up and the fatigue is bad, I mean, I'm, I'm laying down. You, you do not have the energy to lift your arm. I mean, you're, it's, I, I've joked that it's like dementors have come and like sucked all the energy out of mm. you. It's just soul crushing, a physical exhaustion that I can't even describe. And for me, I don't even get super sleepy. I am just like dead weight. Like I just can't do anything. Um, so, you know, I, I do stuff like, like I said, I, most of the time when I get ready in the morning, I no longer stand at the, the sink and dry my hair. I might, you know, I have a walker, so I might wheel that in and sit that down and, and use that to get ready and, and just kind of save my energy because I know because I only have so much of it, I need to pick where I'm going to use it during the day. So it's one thing to be going through everything that you're going through and it's a whole other side to get up not only the energy but sort of like the courage especially in this highly divisive sort of issue I don't know why it's so divisive but it is Mm -hmm. so you go on TikTok and you make videos explaining all these things Uh, you uh, sort of get into little battles with trolls and, and idiots who are commenting on it but what made you want to start sharing this in a more public setting I mean, you have videos that are millions of views. Uh, that's a lot of people with eyeballs on you. Like what sort of made you want to become more of a public face for this this thing on t- while you're already going through so much? So um, I started sharing my story pretty early on. So the CBC, the National News, interviewed me August of 2020 uh, live. They didn't tell me it was going to be live. No until I was talking to the interviewer. So that was fun. Um, and I, that was the first time I shared my story. And then um, I also uh, shared my story kind of as it relates to, you know, another portion of my illness uh, was CTV a few months ago, again, for the national news. And um, I, I mentioned I hadn't been working for the last six months. I had been on TikTok. And, you know, not working, I felt like I needed to be uh, giving back to the world in some way. I needed mm. to be producing something. And genuinely, I know I'm not as sick as a lot of long haulers. That Most long haulers um, are probably a lot worse than I am. So the fact that I had energy and I felt like I could speak for those who couldn't. And honestly, it I, I had tried to speak up on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Um, because I'm from the States, I actually went to Bible college. Um, so like 50% of my Facebook contacts are uh, evangelical Christians from the Midwest. So you can imagine um, mm. my message wasn't always well received. Mm. I spent most of 2020 blocking a lot of people. Um, so I felt like TikTok was kind of a safe place where I could speak to an audience that was willing to listen. And you know, it took a few weeks of dealing with trolls to to figure out, A, you know, there are troll farms, there are trolls, there are people who've been brainwashed by this. Um, and TikTok has this great feature where you can just, you know, delete or block people. And what I really tried to do was to create a place where long haulers felt safe. They felt like they could come into my comments and share their stories. And like, if you read my comments, you'll just see people swapping stories. This is what's happening to me and my doctor won't believe me or my family won't believe me or I just need someone to listen. And it almost becomes a a support group in itself. And there's a lot of people who just comment, you know, when I watch your stuff, I feel seen. I feel validated. I sent this to my family because you explain the thing that I've been trying to explain to them, but I don't have the energy to. So I'm just trying to give that kind of empathetic space to the people that are hurting the most right now. And if, and if, if that's all I'm doing is making them feel better while they go through hell, then I'm, I'm doing some good, I think. It's so interesting to me that even two years, you know, you can talk to any healthcare professional um, about 
COVID and its effects just in general. Um, you could you if you could look into an ICU ward, you could see all this that we still have people who like aren't receptive to. I mean, we still have folks that don't believe this is real, which is just I, I don't even know what to say. But at like at this point, like with long COVID, it's like how could you dismiss it now? I like I just to me, I, 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 that's the the rational part of my brain, but I just. I don't see any like being anti-vax is one thing that I don't understand. It's one thing though, but to to deny what these people are experiences experiencing after all they've been through is, is to me that's my like it just it makes no sense. I don't understand that. It, it it's funny because I. I've been talking about medical gaslighting the last week or so on my page, and it's because I had a conversation with one of my uh, specialists who, you know, again, is fighting the good fight against anti-vax messaging, but he thinks that um, my long COVID symptoms will go away after the pandemic because I'm just too stressed right now. And I, I try to explain to him, you know, I'm, my symptoms started before we even knew what long COVID was. Like it, it wasn't, and there's never been a time that they weren't there. Like it, I was sick and then I've just been sick for 22 months. And, uh, you know, he'll say, well, I, I think they're functional. I think they might be in your head. I think it's a result of too much stress. I think your, your brain is predisposed to these types of uh, stress events. Well, stress didn't give me a fever every day for 22 mm. months. You know, stress isn't giving me excruciating leg pain. Like it, it doesn't make sense. So it's it's frustrating to still be battling that with with rational science thinkers who are fighting the fight against you know COVID misinformation, but still are gaslighting long haulers. <laughs> I mean, I was reading. I think it was this week or if not late last week, there was the study out of the UK, I think that was basically explaining how COVID uh, can get into the brain. And then, you know, that's why we see, you know, organ damage and all sorts of different things. Um, so like we're even getting this research. Uh, and so even if it, I mean, just, theoretically it was your brain i mean who's to say that like covid didn't damage parts of your brain which like then you know started to do other things to your body like it just <laughs> i mean I, I don't really have a lot of words it's like i'm just kind of flabbergasted you know what i mean like it's just what <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot of science out there and i think they're starting to drill down on what exactly the biomarkers are for long COVID, and they're going to be undeniable once they're confirmed so um for now uh this doctor and i follow each other on twitter so i make a point every time one of those articles comes out to retweet them and uh you know make sure i'm just putting some science in front of them to uh try to persuade them i like i do love like you shouldn't have to it's not fair but i do love that you're not afraid to like sometimes go at these people and you're very you know respectful i guess you could say professional in a way like you're not being like oh you're so fucking stupid like you're just like educational very calm but i do admire that like you don't let that type of bullshit sort of like sit there unchecked um that you do sort of like go back at them with with concrete stuff science stories um whatever it is uh, i do because i struggle with that too you know in the mental health space uh and my advocacy and work you know i get that a lot where people especially with toxic masculinity i was talking there was a post the other day where people were calling me gay and stuff and i was like ah do i ignore it do i go at them and you kind of like nah, i feel probably be better if i just ignore it but when it comes to this and the so much misinformation and disinformation and intentional harm, you know, I'm happy that you can go back at some of these, these ridiculous people. Some, some definitely aren't worth engaging with, but some do light a fire in me. And, mm. and uh, you know, if I have a, a concrete example, I, I think one, one good example that I, I have is there was a nutritionist who came at me who basically said, you know, if you just, you know, don't eat muffins or sugar, then you're going to be well enough to beat COVID and you don't need the vaccine. 
And my message back to her was, um, here's the thing. As someone who used to invest, oh, she was a personal trainer too. I said, as someone who used to invest a ton of money in races, and I worked out at Orange Theory, and all that money that I was pouring into the wellness community, I can't pour into them anymore. All of these personal trainers who are misleading their folks and causing them not to get the vaccine, they're going to lose the income because their folks are going to get COVID and either die or get long COVID, and they're not going to be able to work out like they used to. So just from a financial standpoint, the woman might want to back off and trying to kill off her folks because, you know, she's going to lose her own livelihood because of her own stupid, dangerous messaging. In a, in a way, I'm not as dangerous. I guess you could consider it, but it's like drug dealers, like poisoning things with like overdosing and fentanyl, right? Like you're like yeah. purposely like trying to like almost like harm your cus- like your customer, your, your market. Uh, and I yeah. love that you said that because I, I'm not against the wellness industry as a whole. You know, I take supplements. I'm receptive yeah. to ideas. I like to exercise. Um, so I'm not against it. But I was supposed to have a gentleman on the podcast. Unfortunately, he bailed. Um, but we're talking about this sort of like, like almost cult-like pseudoscience that these sort of like wellness people and fitness people have undertaken in this pandemic to like undermine public health and actual science with their their you know their ideas of like oh if you're like I said at the beginning you're young and healthy you're gonna be fine you're gonna beat this. And I'm so happy you said that, that like you were like, you were doing all those things that that will help beat you COVID and like this has happened and it can happen to anybody and it's not worth the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's not a second of my life that I don't think about the pain I'm in or how limited my life is now or how much I miss my old life. I, I think I definitely have gotten, I've had to go through a grieving process, right? Like I, I held out hope for the first year thinking like, oh, I might run again. I've accepted that my life is what it is right now. And that's, again, why I'm trying to give back because I'm trying to use the energy that I have for the the best purpose that I can right now since I can't, you know, I've gained like 12 hours a week back from not running. So, you know, I've got some free time. Mm-hmm. I also bake bread now, which I didn't do before. So you know, <laughs> I'm trying to take advantage um but yeah it's uh i i wouldn't wish this on anyone you mentioned sort of that grieving process and that was kind of like the one thing i i wanted to sort of end on because i think it's it's hard and you know you're very cheerful and i i love that you're giving back but and like to have this life and then have this one thing happen to you and completely change everything i mean i mean that's like losing a a friend or a family member or a loved one like it's it's almost that same emotional impact on everything so you know with what 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 you're comfortable sharing but taking take me through sort of that process of finding at least some sort of acceptance and like how you upkeep that emotional well-being and that mental like upkeeping your mental health in a time where you maybe used to go for a run and sure giving back and baking bread is great but like have you had to develop sort of new and other techniques uh, like in your own mind self-talk therapy those types of things so I actually have an appointment on February 1st I found a local uh therapist. Um, I also have a condition called functional neurological disorder, which scrambles the signals to my legs. And sometimes I can't walk. Um, and part of the treatment for that is psychotherapy. So I found a very specific Mm -hmm. therapist who can help me with both that and with some of the challenges that I've had mentally dealing with long COVID. So do I think I'm, you know, in a great headspace? I'd say I'm average. Um, you know, it definitely the first year was much harder. I, I full on was depressed the first year. It was very sad. I constantly had that ache in the pit of my stomach, you know, missing my old life. Um, I'm very fortunate to live where I live and I'm very fortunate to have the support of my spouse and my family and my job. And that's, that's made it so much easier. So 
to, you know, to pick up new activities that have replaced some of the old, like I've gotten super into Call of Duty. I <laughs> game a lot now. I probably play at least an hour a day. Um, now I can't just play straight through. We play multiplayer. So I do like a 10 minute game and I hand it to my husband. He plays 10 minutes. So back and forth means it doesn't like over, you know, right. stimulate my brain too much, but uh, I enjoy the killing. Um, <laughs> so that helps. Um, but, you know, living on, you know, some farmland, you know, we do grow crops. We have veggies, you know, and, and mm. stuff that we grow in the spring and I have gardens and there are some very quiet, relaxing things that I can do in my, you know, home space where I'm not going out. I'm not being around other people. I think where I, I struggle mentally is anytime I go out of that comfort bubble, it's very hard. So I have very bad social anxiety right now. Um, and that social anxiety is a trigger for the FND. So if I were to, it happened just a few weeks ago, I um, had dinner for the first time indoors with another house that was fully vaxxed and we had similar risk tolerances. The only time I've done an indoor dinner in you know the last two years and within an hour and a half, I couldn't walk. And it was just the stimulation of talking to someone outside of my home bubble, really. And they were good friends. It was just, it mm -hmm. was too much for me that day. So I need to talk to a therapist about dealing with the social anxiety. I still very much have that, you know, scarlet, see on my chest from COVID. I, I very much feel like people can see my illness on me and I need to get over that very much mm -hmm. so. Um, and then, you know, when I'm, I don't know if I have a whole lot of, of coping mechanisms other than, you know, just trying to keep busy and, and distracted. And, and honestly, it's, it's been very, mentally beneficial to pour into others and to you know be a resource for others i've had you know conversations with you know some of the folks i've met on tiktok on the phone or in video and you know really spent time with them over chat just you know talking them through their issues and and honestly that distraction is a good reminder that you know as bad as i have it there are people who have it so much worse and and honestly the other thing that i think we all deal with is a little bit of survivor guilt too you know, mm. yes, we're here. And mm. yes, we're complaining about this awful thing that we're going through, but we lived. There's a lot of people who didn't. And we should be grateful for that. Like, I, I, And I think that helps get me out of any why me mindset that I might spend too much time in, because it's, it's easy to settle into the why did I go into that grocery store on that day? I went in for wine. I told that story on TikTok and people were like, if you weren't such an alcoholic, you wouldn't have got COVID. And I was like, you're right. I was stocking up. It was the pandemic. We thought we were going to be in lockdown for months. I grabbed 12 bottles and apparently I grabbed COVID too. So. Wow. Well, you know, all the people who are saying that were the same ones hoarding toilet paper at the same time. So. Very true. Very you know, true. just, I've learned so much about humanity and humans and community, both good and bad throughout this last two years. Um, and uh, I'm thankful that you came across the FYP because you're one of the good ones. Um, and I don't want to keep you because now I'm super worried. Like, I don't want to contribute to making anything worse for you. But uh, I do really appreciate you sharing all this. Like I said, it's, um, it's one of those things that we sort of know is there, but no one really talks about out in the open too much. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot watching your videos. So like if I know you share on TikTok. Um, I don't know if you share other places, but where can people find you and like hear more about your story, go much more in depth on some of the things we talked about? Yeah, I would check out TikTok. It's at, at uh, Long COVID Life. Um, I've got a couple months worth of, of content and some of it's just straight educational, explaining some of the terminology surrounding Long COVID. Um, so, you know, hopefully it's a good resource for folks. Uh, definitely go check it out. Um, Beth, thank you so much. Um, I really, I do really appreciate it. And I, you know, I, I hope to God that you and other people who are, you know, who have this and are suffering, that there's some sort of research or treatment or like, for the love of God, some good news for once. Um, I just, I, I think we really could use that now. So thank you.